Now, in Mark chapter 4, we come to the place where Jesus has enjoyed widespread popularity in his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. The crowds coming to him number not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands. They all want to listen to Jesus. They all want to press in upon him and receive something from his ministry. Now, as we come to chapter 4, we see how Jesus could continue to teach when there was such a crowd pressing in all around him. He did something creative. He started teaching from a boat. Check it out here, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables, and he said to them in his teaching, now before going to verse 3, let's just consider. You got the scene laid out for you, don't you? Here's Jesus on the shore, the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd is beginning to press upon him, and he can't really speak to him adequately. They're so close to him, his voice can't project over the people most immediately to him. And so he hops into a boat, sets a few feet offshore, and the people aren't coming so close anymore, and there they are, gathered around the shore, and there's a group of hundreds, maybe thousands of people spread all across the shore, and Jesus is there to present the word to them. And as he gets ready to teach, Jesus understands something about his audience. It's a big audience. And it's an audience that at least in some portion of it has become hard to what he said. We saw in previous weeks going through this Gospel of Mark, we saw how some of the people who heard Jesus were actually hostile religious leaders who were looking for an excuse to condemn him. Looking for a reason to, well, put Jesus away and to do away with him. So Jesus sees that the crowd's big, and he knows that some of it is hardened towards his message. And because he sees that, he begins to teach using a tool known as the parable. Did you see it there in verse 2 where it says, Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them, and his teacher, well, what is a parable? Well, a parable means, well, the ancient Greek word comes from the idea of setting something alongside something else. And so as Jesus used parables, it means he set aside a spiritual truth alongside a daily truth of living. It's somewhat like an illustration. And every preacher, every teacher knows how valuable illustrations can be when you teach. You know that you can be talking to a group of people and you can see them beginning to glaze over in their eyes. You can sense, you just know it as a speaking, I'm losing this crowd. And then you use an illustration. You, you, you tell a story from your own life or from something you've heard or something you've seen on the news and instantly you see everybody perk up again. Now, of course, it's true that the illustration of the story can be overused in a sermon. And sometimes I've listened to sermons and noticed that, well, pretty much the, the preacher, the pastor... He's using Bible verses to illustrate his stories, is what he does, because, you know, it's, it's mostly all stories and anecdotes with a sprinkling of Bible verses. Well, no, it should be the opposite. You should make the truth the foundation of your teaching and then liberally illustrate, liberally sprinkle in with good illustrations and anecdotes. And Jesus used some of these mechanisms very well in parables. It takes skill, though, to make a good parable. And sometimes the things we use to explain or illustrate things actually end up working against us. I I saw something kind of interesting from uh, high school students, examples from their essays, and they asked a bunch of English teachers to submit the worst analogies you ever read in high school students' essays. And here were some of them. They said, 
His thoughts tumbled in his head, making and breaking alliances like underpants in a dryer without cling-free. Or her hair glistened in the rain like nose hair after a sneeze. The little boat gently drifted across the pond exactly the way a bowling ball wouldn't. From the attic came an unearthly howl. The whole scene had an eerie, surreal quality like when you're on vacation in another city and Jeopardy comes on at 7 p.m. instead of 7.30. She caught your eye like one of those pointy hook latches that used to dangle from the screen doors and would fly up whenever you banged the door open again. Or this was one of my favorites. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. So it's a lot easier said than done to come up with an appropriate illustration or analogy. But Jesus was good at it. And in this parable that follows, beginning at verse 3, 3 through 9, you're going to see Jesus using one of his most well-known parables. And because it's well-known, I'm up against an impossible challenge as I stand before you right now this morning. You see, what I, what I want to do right now, if I could... I would wipe the memory blank of your mind clean at this point and have it as if you had never heard this parable before in your life. You had never heard it, and you had never heard it explained. I wish somehow I could do that. What I want you to do is when I read this parable to you in the next several verses, I want you to think and to act as if you've never heard it before and... You don't know what it means. As if there you are, you're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and this teacher, who you know is famous and has caught your attention, you're hearing him say it. You haven't heard him explain it. You haven't heard anybody explain it. You're hearing this for the very first time. Verse 3. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, the story in and of itself, without any kind of explanation, the story itself is simple enough, isn't it? Jesus describes something that everybody who heard him for the first time would have been familiar with. A farmer casting seed on the ground and the seed falling on different kinds of soil. I know that as you hear this from the first time, and in our culture, separated by these thousands of years, you listen to it and you say, what a stupid farmer. Why is he throwing the seed out into places where it might not grow? Why doesn't he plow the field and shape the rows for cultivation and then carefully lay the seed inside of those rows for cultivation and then do it that way? Why doesn't he do it that way? Well, because that's not how they farmed back then. How they farmed in those days was the farmer would cast the seed out, and of course some of it would bounce into places where he didn't want it to. That's how it is whenever you're casting anything out, grass seed or fertilizer. You know how it is. It just kind of goes and it bounces around. So some of it inadvertently lands in places where you don't want it to. But it was even more than that. 
Because in those days, the farmer would plow after he cast the seed. And why they did that was because then the plowing action would work the seed into the soil, and then things would grow up. So a lot of times the farmer didn't know if, for example, there was a rocky kind of shelf underneath the topsoil. Maybe the topsoil was only about an inch thick, which was common in that part of the world. And underneath it was a rocky shelf, so the, the grain might spring up immediately because it's nice and warm because of the rocky shelf, but it doesn't have enough room to take root, and so it dies quickly. So it makes perfect sense according to the customs and the geography of that day. Jesus explains how a farmer goes out and as he casts the seed, some of it bounces onto the pathway, the wayside, the the hard path where people would walk. Well, that's not going to grow, right? Matter of fact, it just stays there on top and the birds come along and take it away. And then other parts of the seed, he, he casts it out and he falls upon ground that has that rocky shelf underneath the topsoil that I described before. And it grows up quickly, but because it can't take deep roots, it dies quickly. Then other parts of the seed, it goes, and it goes upon ground that's fertile, but it also grows up a lot of weeds. And the grain grows up, but so do the weeds, and the weeds choke out whatever grain is there. But finally, you have some seed that goes upon good soil, and it grows up, and it bears fruit, but in different proportions, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Right? A very common parable. You, you see it, you understand But can I just ask you a question here? If you had never heard this parable explained before, if you never heard the spiritual interpretation of it, how many of us would know what Jesus is speaking about here? We wouldn't. We'd say, well, that's an interesting story. But until we hear the key to the parable, we don't understand what it's about. Now, that's why the disciples came to Jesus in verse 10. Take a look at it. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. I love that. I I picture it in my mind like this. Here's the disciples. You know, they're kind of in the front row when Jesus is teaching this parable. And they're they're the amen chorus for Jesus. You know, he's telling the story. Yes, Jesus. Yes. Amen. Preach it, Jesus. Yes. Yes. You know, and they're acting like they're following him exactly. And then afterwards, they come to Jesus and they say, "Uh, Jesus, what exactly did you mean by everything you were saying there? Well, he's going to explain it to him. Verse 11. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. What Jesus is doing with that quotation from the book of Isaiah is he's recognizing the hardness of heart in his audience. And he says, I'm teaching in parables. Not so that the truth can be readily understood by everybody, but rather a parable. Well, let me explain it to you this way. A parable in their spiritual function is more like a riddle or a puzzle than an easy illustration. When you understand the key to the parable, it illustrates spiritual truth for you. But if you don't understand the key to the parable, well, it's just a pleasant story. You see, a parable isn't exactly an illustration. Now, a good teacher uses illustrations. And how he does that is he states a truth, and then he says, let me illustrate it for you. It's like this. And then he tells a story or draws an analogy or something like that. Okay, he states the truth, and then there's the illustration of it. That's not how Jesus used parables. Jesus didn't start out by stating a truth. 
Instead, the parable was like a doorway where he presented the story, the person stood before the doorway, and if they wanted to know more, they could enter into it with their heart and mind and seek God about it, and he would give them the key, and then they would know more. But if they didn't really want to know more, they could just stand outside the doorway and look through it. You see, if they were interested, they could go through the doorway and find more of the truth behind the parable and what it meant to their life. But the point of it is, is if you don't understand the key to the parable, you don't understand it at all. We can imagine what different people in Jesus' audience might have thought when he taught this parable without any explanation. And let's remember, he didn't give the explanation to the multitude. He just gave it to the disciples who asked for it. I mean, there's a farmer in Jesus' audience standing there by the shore of Sea of Galilee, and there's Jesus in the boat speaking. And the farmer says, I like this. I like this teaching. He's telling me that I have to be more careful in the way that I cast my seed. I guess I've been wasting an awful lot. Thank you, Jesus. This is very helpful to me. And then there's a politician there in the audience, and the politician, he thinks, I like this, man. He's telling me that I need to begin a farm education program to help farmers more efficiently cast their seed. This is going to be a big boost to me in my re-election campaign. Thank you, Jesus. That was a good word. Then next to the politician, there's a newspaper reporter. And the newspaper reporter says, this is great. He's telling me that there's a big story here about the bird problem and how it affects the farming community. So, So that's a great idea for my next series in the newspaper. And then next to him, there's a salesman. And the salesman sells farming supplies. And he says, well, he's encouraging me in my fertilizer sales. That's what I need to do. These farmers, they're in trouble. Look at it. Only only one quarter of the seed they're casting is doing anything. They need my help. And that farmer can use my help. And I'll sell more product that way. Thank you, Jesus, for telling me that story. You see, without the key, none of them can understand the spiritual meaning. So what is the key to the parable? Let's skip ahead a couple verses. Look at verse 14. Here's the key. The sower sows the word. Well, that's it. You understand that the seed is the word of God. Everything else makes sense. Well, then who's sowing the word of God? It's the preacher. The preacher's out sowing the word of God. And what's the different kinds of soil? It's the different kind of hearts that receive it. But if you don't understand that the seed is the word of God, you don't understand anything about the parable. For example, if you think that the seed represents love, you know, and Jesus is telling us, you cast your love out, but it doesn't always bear fruit everywhere. Some places it's barren. That's what, well, no, you don't understand what he's getting at. If you think that the seed is money, what Jesus is saying, you cast your money out and some of it's wasted, but some of it's productive. See, you don't get the parable. If you think that the seed is hard work, and Jesus is saying you put out your hard work, but not all of it comes back and bears fruit, but some of it does, you're missing it. You only understand this parable if you understand the key. And here's the key. The sower sows the word. Now, for those who really had an interest in what Jesus was teaching, those who who were spiritually alive in their hearts, they wanted to know more, and they would seek God either directly by asking Jesus or just in their own time with the Lord. What was the key to that story, Lord? And the Lord would tell them, and they'd understand it. But for those who didn't, they would remain hardened in their hearts. You see, that's the dynamic of a parable. When you do understand it, it opens up great, great ways of illustrating God's truth. If you don't understand it, then you just don't understand it. 
So let's look at what the parable means as Jesus explains it to it. Verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on the stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the world's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. You see, once Jesus explains to us that the sower sows the word, everything makes perfect sense. Jesus says that the word of God is like a seed. It gets planted in our heart, and then it has the potential to bear fruit. But not every seed that is planted bears fruit. The kind of soil that it lands on makes all the difference. Now, first of all, we can relate to the idea of the word of God being like a seed. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 also says that the word of God is like a seed. In that passage, Peter says that we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You see, the word of God is like a seed. And so you get the idea here. Here's the preacher. The preacher is out casting the seed. By the way, this teaches us something very important, that it's by preaching that the seed is sown. You can study the seed. You can categorize the seed. You can analyze seed. You can know the seed. You can even love the seed. You can memorize the DNA profile of the seed. But if you don't actually go out and cast the seed, then the work of God isn't going to get done. The word needs to be put out there. It needs to be preached. And that's what Jesus is telling us. If you don't sow it, nothing will grow. The other thing he tells us is something that makes us perhaps just a little bit uncomfortable. We're all used to critiquing the preacher. Hey, look, it's okay. I know I don't have a thin skin on this matter. Everybody does it. I do it. Everybody, whoever sits in front of a preacher, you critique him. You say, I like this guy. I don't like this guy. He's okay. He's not okay. He's better than some, worse than others. You know, you categorize him. It's as if everybody's got the Olympic you know, a little score sheet, and you got a whole congregation of little judges, and they hold up the number there, right there. Everybody does it. It's just natural. I do it when I listen to preachers. I, it, I know how this works. And sometimes we all know that, you know, sometimes preachers aren't the entirely easiest people to listen to. Maybe it's little idiosyncrasies in what they say. You know, the guy's always saying, you know. And pretty soon you're taking notes, and you start making a mark for every time he says, you know. You have it listed, oh, you know, you know, or um. You start counting the ums that he says. And here's the difficulty about it is that the speaker is almost always initially unaware of those vocal idiosyncrasies. So I don't know what I do that drives you crazy. Maybe you're making note of it right now and you just mark down another one, but I'm unaware of it. That's just the way it is. So we're all used to this. You do it, I do it. It's just part of how we do things. 
But Jesus is saying, listen, it's not the speaker who's on trial now. It's the listener. We're not going to analyze the speaker this morning, though that's worthy to do. I mean, I'm all for people endeavoring to be better teachers. I think pastors and preachers and teachers, I think they should go to conferences. I think they should be trying to improve themselves. I think they should do everything they can to effectively understand and effectively present the Word of God. They should work at it. It's something that they need to be passionate about. Friends, that's not the only place that that this ministry takes place. There's also room for people being better hearers of the Word and the kind of hearers that are described right here. Jesus is challenging every one of us. He's saying, don't critique the preacher right now. There may be a time and a place for that later on. You look at your own life and see what kind of a hearer of the word you are. So it's not, the, not Jesus who's, who's being critiqued as a preacher. The issue is not how well Jesus is preaching. The issue is how well we will listen to him. And that's what this parable is all about. So he says, basically, you can divide it up into four categories. The first category is in verse 15. These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. I like how Jesus says in the beginning of verse 15, and these are the ones. He introduces each category with the phrase, and these are the ones. I almost picture him in my mind, he's gesturing, and these are the ones like this, and these are the ones like this. And I mean, it's a common tool that a speaker would use. And I bet Jesus is doing something like that as he speaks. But now he's speaking, these are the ones sown by the wayside. Now a wayside is a path. You know how it is on, on a dirt trail when people walk over the same place repeatedly, it gets beaten down into a hard path. And if a seed is cast upon that hard place, it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to stay right up on top. And then who comes and gets it? Well, a bird will come along and swoop down and grab it and fly away with it. And isn't that how the word of God comes to many people? They come, but there's a hardness to their heart. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear about their need for Jesus. And because of that hardness of heart, the word of God never penetrates. It just kind of lays up on top. And Satan is always there to grab it away. And we know how Satan loves to do that. We know how Satan loves to take anything he can, at any moment he can, to steal away the word of God from somebody's heart. Why, he may send them into the the sanctuary already in the morning, and their heart is already hardened and ready to push away the word of God. Or, Or maybe it's distractions that he brings at the moment. Maybe it's something just right at the moment. There you are, you're listening to the message, and, and all of a sudden, your, your mind or your heart is a hundred miles away from where you're sitting. You're thinking, of, you're thinking of surfing, or you're thinking of skiing, or you're thinking of lunch. It's getting about that time, isn't it? Or, or you're thinking about the argument that you had with your wife driving on the way there, and you're still fuming over that. Or or you're thinking about this difficulty or that difficulty. Maybe there's some great trial in your life or somebody you know and love is hurting deeply and you're not listening to a word that's being said. You're focusing in on that. You see how Satan's working in that. By the way, now that's another reason why we like to keep distractions in the church service to a minimum. Because when there's a lot of distractions about, it, it makes a way for Satan to come along and distract somebody and just snatch the word right from their heart. There they are. The, the, the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to your heart, really bearing down, really touching your life with something. And then all of a sudden, whoops, there's a distraction, and, and your mind is completely off what the Word of God is saying to you. 
This can work in a lot of different ways. One way that I've seen it work is with precious, precious children, babies. Now, it happens, and, you know, it's not the baby's fault, of course, but somebody has a little child, beautiful baby, and they come and they, well, sometimes they come and they sit right up front in the first couple rows, and they know their child is perfectly well-behaved and isn't going to make a peep. Hey, that's great. That's wonderful. The child's so well-behaved. That's great. Oh, but then they do it, and I see them do it. And the, the child begins to stir a little bit, and they come, and they pick up that baby, and they put it on their shoulder. Any mother would do that, right? But then I see what happens with every face behind that child. Oh, it's like an automatic turning on. It's like a fan pattern. Everybody in the line of sight of that child, whoom, their eyes instantly go, and they look at that, they look at the face of that precious baby, and I can't blame them. That, that, That beautiful baby's face is a lot more interesting to look at than mine. I can't compete with that baby. Come on. And so he says, oh, please, you know, the child's so precious. And we don't want to make you feel bad, but please, if you've got to bring your child in, just sit towards the back. That way, when you put the child up, there's not going to be very many people behind you to see it. And so you see how even innocent kind of things like that, that really aren't, I mean, somebody gets up and they they go in and out during the service or whatever the difficulty is, it can make a distraction. And with that distraction, Satan can swoop in and take away the word of God. And something that might have been a a, a life-changing point for somebody instead is just a a seed that's stolen away by by the work of Satan. Well, but it's not all Satan that we have to contend with in hearing the word well. And this brings us to our next category. Look at it, verse 16. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure it only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now there's some people, they... They hear the word and they're so excited. They're so pumped up. It's something life-changing. It's, yes, I want this. Yes, God, do this work in my life. And they grow up so quickly. Now, this is like the seed that got planted on that thin layer of topsoil. And underneath it is a rocky shelf. And on that rocky shelf that's underneath it, actually the seed grows up quicker because it's warmer there. It's a little bit almost like a little mini greenhouse there. But as the, the, it grows up, it can't take root down through the rocky bottom And so it quickly dies. It's always very sad to see that, isn't it? It's sad to see it on a big scale where somebody comes to Jesus with such enthusiasm. They're so on fire. You think, oh man, this is great. Isn't this spectacular? And then a matter of weeks or months later, it's suddenly, well, you know, I tried that Jesus thing and now I moved on to something else. Why is it so often? Look, Jesus explains to us why it is. He says in in verse 17, They have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. In other words, the the root that they had in Jesus, it wasn't in themselves. Maybe the root was, well, maybe the root was in their parents. You know, it's it's their parents' faith, or maybe it's their friends' faith, or, or maybe it was their pastor's faith. But whatever it was, it wasn't their own real, personal, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. There was no true root in themselves. Jesus, that's what you have to have. You and yourself, a deeply rooted relationship with Jesus Christ. And what's the the result? Then they endure only for a time. Tribulation, persecution comes up, and it always comes up, doesn't it? So friends, when it comes up, if your roots aren't deep, you'll just wither away. And it saddens us because we, 
We have people and they come and they're so discouraged and they say, well, I tried it and it didn't work. Your heart just breaks and you say, I'm so sorry for the difficulty that you had, for the trial that you went through. But Fred, you, you didn't really have your roots down deep enough in Jesus. You put your trust in him, he'll never disappoint you. Not that it'll always be easy, and I, I'm sorry that it was so difficult for you, but, but Jesus didn't let you down. Friends, you see, immediately it says they, they stumble. And that's a very sad thing to see. Now, it also happens on a smaller scale, just for those who do trust in Christ from week to week, doesn't it? You hear something and you get very excited about it. You know, you're shaking my hand at the back. Oh, Pastor, that was great. God spoke to me so much. Yes, thank you, Lord. Then almost before you start the car in the parking lot, it's gone. Just woo. You don't even know where it went. It's almost unexplainable. You think there must be some kind of evil spirit out there in the parking lot because as soon as you set a foot out in that blacktop, woo, it's gone. Well, friends, what, what the problem is is that it just didn't take down root deep enough. So what can you do to help the word that you hear take deeper root? Well, let me give you a few very practical ways. One way that you could do it is take notes. When you take notes, when you listen, it helps the word to take deeper root. But here's another thing you can do. You can do something about what you heard immediately. A lot of times we like to do this when we give people the opportunity to go back and pray with somebody after service. God's spoken to your heart. He, he's told you about something that needs to be developed or worked on in your life. Well, if you do something about it right then, that helps the roots to sink down deeper in that seed that was planted. Or maybe some of you, you just need to establish a ritual where you remember something. I suggested this during the first service, and why not suggest it for a second? Make it a ritual on Sunday nights when you brush your teeth. Right, every one of you is going to brush your teeth, I hope so. Good dental hygiene here. Before you go to bed tonight, you're going to stand in the bathroom and brush your teeth. Make it a ritual on Sunday night when you brush your teeth, you remember what God said to you in the message that morning. If you make it a habit, if you make it some point of remembrance, something connected with later on that you do in the day, you'll start getting in the habit, and you'll remember it. And it helps the roots to sink down. So you do those things, and, and it won't be a matter of just hearing it and forgetting it immediately. But that doesn't cover everybody. Then there's the third case that Jesus speaks about here, and it's in verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Well, you can picture this, right? Wow, look at that stock of grain grow up. Boy, it's so green and healthy, isn't that great? Boy, it's going to be a great harvest from that crop. Then you come back a couple days later, and there's some other plants growing up. Now, at the beginning, you can't tell what they are. You say, well, look, there's even more grain growing up. Isn't that great? But before long, you see, it's not grain growing up around that beautiful stock of wheat. It's weeds. And the problem is that, well, if you will, that that ground is too fertile. Yes, the word of God grows in it, but so does everything else. And they receive the word, but the interests and the cares of the world come in and they choke out the word. Friends, I wonder if this isn't the category most relevant to, to us in today's culture. Where we have so many things constantly coming at us, so much information. It's almost seeming to be 24 hours a day that information bombards us and it chokes out the word of God in our life. Where you're not thinking about the Word of God, you're thinking about the television. 
or the music or the, the, the entertainment or the newspaper and all those things. And those things may be fine in and of themselves, but not if they choke out the word of God in your life. You say, well, how do I know if they're choking out the word of God? Is the word of God truly being fruitful in your life? That's how you measure it. Then you know. Look if the fruit's being produced. If it's not being produced, maybe it's being choked out. Friends, and you know how this works sometimes. There you are, you're, you're driving alone in your car. and You know, it's one of the few times when you're all by yourself and it's quiet. And God's speaking to you and... You know, maybe he's reminding you of something that you read that morning in a devotional, and he's really speaking something to your heart. Or maybe you're remembering something that you heard in, in a message a day or a week before, and he's saying, yeah, that's, that's me, that's where I'm at. And the Lord's speaking to your heart, and then all of a sudden, it's as if you have this uncontrollable urge to turn on the radio. It's like just something to crowd out this word of God coming in me, and you, you never give time for the Lord just to speak to your heart and for that seed of the word to flourish and to grow without being choked out by the things and the cares of this world. Jesus says what kind of things choke out the word too in verse 19. He says the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Well, the, the cares of this world, we know what that is, right? You're so worried about this and so worried about that and so worried about the other thing that you don't let the word of God really have its work in your life or the deceitfulness of riches, what you're really interested in money and how you can keep it and how you can spend it and all those things, it's deceiving you. And then if there's anything else, well, look what he says in verse 19, and the desires for other things. Well, that covers just about everything else. (laughs) Whatever it is, if it's choking out the word of God, you need to cut it back. You need to get that spiritual weed killer and do a, little, do a little work there in the garden of your heart, don't you? Weed those things out. It's not worth it. It's choking out the word. And you might look at the, the plot of ground that's your heart and say, oh, what a fine green crop, but it's all weeds. Yes, it's very lush. It's verdant. My, my. And if there was a, a, a weed and garden monthly, your heart would make the cover of it. <laughs> well, friends, that's not what we're shooting for, is it? There's no fruit in that. It's not enough to say, well, look at the beautiful foliage, but it's all weeds. No, you need, to, you need to weed those things out and let the word of God grow and prosper and bear fruit in your heart. Because that brings us to the fourth category here, verse 20. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Praise God that even though... It, it may only happen in one out of four cases. Some people are like the good ground. And what do they do first? They, well, they hear the word. They hear it. They're listening. And then they accept it. Yes, Lord, I accept the word into my life. I accept it. And then what happens? It bears fruit. You know, when it bears fruit, that fulfills the purpose for the seed. When the farmer's out casting out seeds, he doesn't cast it out to be bird food. He doesn't cast it out so that it would die quickly or get choked out. He means it to bear fruit, to bring forth more grain. And that's exactly what it does in the heart that has its heart cultivated in the right way. See, this parable shows us that when the word is received as it should be, something happens. Fruit is produced. And if nothing happens, then the word is not being received as it should. You can look at your own life. Honestly now. 
I can't look at it for you. This is between you and God. But you ask God, God, is there really fruit in my life? Is it really coming forth? Is the word that's been implanted in me, is it, is it bearing fruit? And if it's not, you need to say, okay, let's go back to the soils and look at how I'm hearing the word. Look at the spiritual cultivation of my heart. And if it's hard, you say, Lord, plow it. If there's a rocky shelf, you say, then, Lord, uh, get those rocks out of there. If there's weeds, and you say, Lord, clear it out. But I want to be at that place where I bear fruit for you. I want you to notice something else that He says that not everybody bears fruit in the same measure. In the good ground, some is 30-fold, some 60, and some 100-fold. Not every Christian is going to bear fruit in the same measure. And we need to understand that, don't we? Sometimes Mr. 100-fold Christian over there, he looks at at Mr. 30-fold Christian. And he says, well, I wonder if Mr. 30-fold's a Christian at all. Look at me, I'm bearing three times as much fruit as he is. And I wonder if he's even saved at all. Come on now, Mr. Thirtyfold, get with it. No, that, that's far too harsh a judgment from Mr. Hundredfold, isn't it? But then sometimes Mr. Thirtyfold, he looks up at Hundredfold. And he says, wow, you know, look at him. I wish I was him. And, and if I could only be him, it's nice for Thirtyfold to have that aspiration. But he doesn't need to concern himself with that. He just concerns himself with having his heart in the right place and receiving the word. And then God gives the harvest, doesn't he? God isn't going to use everybody in this room in the same way. And God wants every person in this room to be fruitful for his glory. But the measure of fruit will differ. It's according to his plan and his glory. And and we can accept that, can't we? So friends, these four categories, they apply to those who hear the gospel of salvation, but they also apply to we who are already saved. You continually hear the word of God, but how do you hear it? Do you let Satan take it away immediately? Do you take it, but then immediately ignore it? Do you allow the cares of the world to make your hearing of the word of no effect? Or do you keep the word and see it bear fruit in your life? That's what you want. I know that's what you want. Because that's why you're here. And that's why the Lord keeps reminding us of these things that we can keep our hearts and our minds in the right place and bear a lot of fruit for him. I don't have to persuade you to have the desire to be a fruit-bearing Christian. You have that. No, God just has to teach us how to get the things that keep the fruit from coming out of the way. So there's really nothing I need to explain to you about this parable. It's all right there in front of us, isn't it? Jesus made it very simple. He laid the parable out and he told us the key. Once he told us the key, we understood it. And now we just come to God and we say, Oh, Lord God, make me a fruit-bearing Christian for you. 30, 60, 100-fold, that's up to you, God. Take out of my life anything that hinders, hinders true fruitfulness. Let's pray that right now. Father, it would be easy for me to think that this Morning is a message mostly for the people listening to me. Lord, I know just as much it's for me too. I need to respond to your word in the right way. Help me to do that, Lord. And I know that that's the prayer of everyone here this morning. Father, maybe there's a hard heart this morning and they need to be plowed up. Some rocks need to be taken out of the way or Or weeds need to die. 
Lord, we know that we don't want anything to, to hinder the roots or to choke out the word. Father, help us to not only hear your word, but to take it in deeply in our hearts and to benefit by it. Because, Lord, the good things that you've done in us, we want to see you do them in the people that we touch with our lives every day. Send us out of this room this morning, Lord, better equipped to shine as lights in this world. Send us out into our mission field to do exactly that. We pray this, Lord God, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.